That song really is a perfect lead-in. Nothing compares to this. Nothing compares to the name of Jesus or who he is. And that really is a quick summary of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than everything. He has no rival. He has no equal. And that's why we gathered to pray on the property yesterday, a, a pre-construction uh, time of prayer. And uh, and if you were, were not able to make it, there were handouts um, out on the, the table in the fellowship area. If you want the handout to be able to just pray as we prayed, we just uh, prayed through the Lord's Prayer and just let God lead us that way and just pray for different aspects of uh, the new address, 11241 Broad River Road. Uh, and uh, so we are on Google Maps now. <laughs> We've made it. Uh, so we have arrived. <clears throat> Though it will give you the wrong directions to get to the property. It'll take you in through some crazy neighborhood. Uh, but um, we welcome you to pray for those things because we want to be ones that lift high the name of Jesus. Uh, we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 6 where it says that Jesus was our forerunner, the one that goes ahead of us, the one that uh, is going ahead in order to bring others with him. And, and so if you think about that, the work of a forerunner, the work of somebody that goes in advance of others is to bring us with him. So his work gives us hope. So the work of Jesus, what he does and has done on the cross, uh, the work of a forerunner is really about the future. Yes, it happens, and, ha and for us, it's happened in the past tense, but not only it brings us uh, just a, a hope in what he has done, it gives us hope as we await what he is bringing about in the future. So what is going to happen, the, the sense of him being a forerunner brings us hope. And so we're going to come to a chapter in the book of Hebrews that if you read ahead, you might say, huh, that was a little challenging. Um, and because it, it's about a figure from the Old Testament named Melchizedek and how Jesus compares with him and with the other Old Testament priests. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, we're going to look at the, be the beginning of this, and we're just going to comb through all of the different aspects of this. And so, if you would, would you stand with me? We are submitting ourselves to the Word of God, and this is just an expression of that. And so turn with your, uh, in your Bibles or on your phones, however you open the Scriptures, to Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation uh, of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace." He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant or his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute 
that the inferior, that's Abraham, is blessed by the superior, that is Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Confused yet? Okay, let's keep going. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So we'll stop there and we'll, we'll get the rest as we go. So let's just pray and ask God to illumine our minds and give us understanding to his word. Uh, Father, we come before you. Uh, you reveal yourself and have chosen to reveal yourself in contrast to the Levitical priests the Old Testament priests and to Melchizedek. God, I pray by your spirit you would give our feeble minds understanding of what you are conveying to us. Uh, Father, above all, that we would not miss the point that Jesus is greater than everybody that has come before him. Jesus brings us to a better hope. Jesus brings us into a more sure and firm salvation. God, help us not leave the same people because we've studied your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Do you remember math class in elementary school? Or it really started to take root in like 6th, 7th, 8th grade when you started to get into some algebra concepts. You know, the whole class was slaving along on either long division in elementary school or the initial, you know, A plus B equals C or whatever. And one kid, you know, uh, just feels compelled to raise his hand and ask, why do we have to learn this stuff? Right? Okay, and every class had that kid. It might have been you. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, you know, it, it, this is kind of one of those moments, right? Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek, Levitical priest. What in the world's going on? Do we have to learn this stuff? Can't we just skip over it, move on to stuff that we would want an easier understanding of? I would say not really, because God has chosen to reveal himself in this way. But the challenge in verse 4 is see how great this man was. That's Melchizedek, uh, to whom Patri Abraham the patriarch gave a, gave a tenth. It's the observation of Melchizedek that gives us an even greater understanding of Jesus. So it's this, this call for us to see, to study, to think on Melchizedek. Don't take it up with me, take it up with the Lord as he has revealed himself in the words, in the words of the book of Hebrews. And so why would we do that uh, is that by studying Melchizedek, we will understand Jesus better. You might be saying, wait a second, I just listened to those words and I understand him less. But the intent of Hebrews 7 is that we would understand him in a greater fashion, but not just stop there, but that we would have a more firm and certain hope. So why do we have to learn this? Let me submit to you that even though uh, we, we may know a lot about Jesus, we, I, th I think our culture is, is riddled with it. I know in my own heart we lack hope. We lack a life that's lived according to the hope that Jesus brings. 
In chapter 6, we looked uh, at, in verse 19, that we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This hope that Jesus comes, that this hope that we can draw near. And then in our chapter, in chapter 7, verse 19, it says that we, that we have a better hope that is introduced, which is... Uh, through which we draw near to God. And so we have a better hope that is ushered in by Jesus, and God wants to reveal and help us understand that hope in contrast to Melchizedek. Hope in things in this world is fleeting, right? Okay, there's all sorts of ways that we kind of put, the things we put our hope in. Hope in financial provision seems to be the suburban number one, right? Uh, and then the stock market crashes. Ooh, okay. And then, you know, mortgage rates go, go crazy and we all lose uh, value in our house. Hmm, maybe our hope can't be in financial provision. And then you're saying, you know what? I come from a, a family we've, that has some resources. My hope is in the family inheritance, and then you realize that possibly one long-term illness can wipe out the entirety of a family's resources. You're like, okay, maybe my hope can't be in an inheritance. You know what? I, I have a hope uh, in, an assert, in a certain ideal future. My family's going to grow up. My kids are going to do well in school. They're going to make it. They're going to go on to have, uh, you know, just uh, quality lives, families, uh, and then something in your dream starts to crumble and life starts to crumble around your ideal future. Hope that is situational is no hope at all. Because we all know, we all know that the situation of life can turn in a moment. We all know that it's not certain. Sure, we live with these longings like we hope life will work out the way we want it, but that's not real abiding hope that the scriptures talk about. That's kind of like uh, th this, this longing or, uh, you know, just kind of expectation. Man, I really uh, want life to turn out well, and we know that it can turn on a dime. That kind of hope is sheepish looking towards the future. I, I really hope this turns out. You know, it's kind of more of a defensive posture, hoping that things don't go wrong. And biblical hope is something entirely different. It's entirely different. Biblical hope, it, it, we talked about here in Hebrews, is a better hope, one that is guaranteed one that changes the way we live today based on a firm, steadfast, and future, a firm future that is guaranteed to us. That's biblical hope. It's not looking towards the future, kind of wondering what's going to come. It's looking towards the future in an absolute hope in our God. And we're going to know about this hope by studying Melchizedek, a mysterious figure in the Bible one of the most debated of Old Testament rabbis and Old Testament scholars. So, who is this guy? So first off, Melchizedek is going to give us a context of Jesus' coming. So Jesus' arrival uh, on earth, uh, Melchizedek is going to give us an understanding into that. So, uh, so to understand Jesus, we understand the offices that he came to fulfill. So remember, we, we've been looking at the priests of the Old Testament, not like our modern-day Catholic priest, but the priests that would represent the people before God. That was the Old Testament priest. You find them in Leviticus in the Old Testament. Uh, have you ever wondered why God would make a system, the Old Testament sacrificial system, 
Why would he make a system that is flawed from its very inception to bring about salvation? Why establish something, Old Testament priests, only to show how feeble their attempts are? Well, it provides a context for our understanding of Jesus. Because the Levitical priesthood, meaning the priests that are described uh, in Leviticus and coming from the tribe of Levi, I'll also term them Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priesthood helps us understand. You know, if, if you went into a village and, who had never heard that God created the world, okay? You go into a village, they've never heard the concept that God created the world, never heard of the fall of man, never heard of the priests, sacrifice, prophets, and, and, and kings. How would you describe Jesus? How would you explain him? It'd be quite difficult, wouldn't it? You know, there was this guy, he lived, he was God, he went on a cross and he died and his blood saves you from your sin. And everybody's going to go, what? What are you even talking about? None of that has context. And so without an understanding of the Old Testament, who is Jesus is very, very difficult to understand. And so, yes, we've looked at the Levitical or Old Testament priest. We're going to look at another priesthood that is just described in the Old Testament. And so we're going to see uh, in, um, from verse 3 that he, that's Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. In verse 17, he's speaking now of Jesus. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. It seems like the writer of Hebrews loves Psalm 110. You might want to become familiar with it to understand the book of Hebrews. And it's, it's that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That was written, that was written a thousand years before before Jesus came to earth. And it's a staggering statement because it's a psalm of David. At that point, the Levitical or Old Testament priesthood had been functioning for 350 years. And that psalm declares that there is a better priesthood that is, a, that is coming. That's a staggering thing because it points to the feeble nature of the Old Testament priesthood to bring salvation but yet it points to a firm and certain faith. All right, so where are we? Quick summary, uh, that the, the point of chapter 7, or at least one of the beginning points, is that Melchizedek is greater than the Old Testament priest, and we're going to see why, okay? Melchizedek is greater than the Old Testament priest. So who is this guy? You have to go to Genesis chapter 14 to get an understanding of Genesis um, of Melchizedek. Let me give you a quick context. Four kings raided Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? This was before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by, by fire, okay? They seized all the goods of the city and carried away Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, okay? Got that? Four kings attack, they carry away goods and carry away Lot, okay? Abraham gets word of this and pursues those four kings and routs them. Okay? He, he gets Lot and he brings all the things that were stolen, probably in addition to everything the kings had, and that's the spoils of what he brings back to the city. Okay? So Abraham returns 
the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. And then we get to Genesis 14, verse 18. So the king of Sodom comes out, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Interesting. Okay, and he was the priest of God most high. Okay, that's verse 18. So he's noted as the priest of God most high. The first priest ever mentioned in the Bible is Melchizedek. Before Exodus, before Leviticus, before Levi. Uh, so the priestly functions of Melchizedek is he brings out uh, kind of a, a meal. Uh, we might say a ceremonial meal, bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham. Um, and go to verse 19 and 20 in that same chapter. He says this, Blessed be Abram, this is before God changed his name, Blessed be Abraham, by God most high, the creator of heaven and earth, and he blessed God, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And what does Abraham do, or Abram do next? He gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gives him, Melchizedek, a tenth of the spoils. Now, who is Melchizedek? Okay, much debate. Uh, one view of who this guy is is some sort of angel or celestial being that's now shown up uh, with Abraham. Okay, I would probably uh, not hold to that view because in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, that a priest is chosen from among his brothers. And so that would be difficult if it's an angelic or celestial being... Uh, uh, there, Some people would say it's a pre-incarnate Christ, meaning that this is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament before he came at Christmas time as a baby, okay? Uh, and, you know, because he receives worship, uh, he receives a, a tenth of the, t of the spoils. Uh, so this makes sense. It even says in, uh, in our verse 3 of Hebrews that he was uh, being made like the Son of God. He was resembling the Son of God. So maybe this is Jesus before he actually came incarnate, okay? I would not hold to that one either because if Melchizedek was Jesus, it's hard to make the case that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. That's the point of Hebrews 7, okay? Um, it also speaks when it says that he has no genealogy, no father, mother, this. Some are taking that to say those things, that he just, poof, appeared. I'm not sure that's what the text is pushing towards. It's merely saying that his genealogy was not recorded. In the Old Testament, if your genealogy as a Levite was not recorded, you are negated as a priest. You're, you're excluded. You're no longer allowed to serve in that capacity. The order of Melchizedek as a priest did not need to be established by a lineage or a genealogy, but by God and God alone. So I would, I would follow many commentators that this is a type of Christ, meaning one, a, a person or a picture in the Old Testament that points to Jesus, symbolizes and anticipates his coming. Okay? Uh, and so... Let's keep going. Where are we now? We, we looked at Melchizedek was greater than the Old Testament priest. Now it is saying that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Now we haven't covered that, but that's where we're going. Okay? Melchizedek's greater than the Old Testament priest. 
Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Believe me, we're going to land this plane sometime. Okay, I'm trying. <laughs> you got to get through this to get to the end of seven. Okay, so, uh, so Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. So let's look at the greatness of Jesus' character. So, it, so Melchizedek and these priests give us a context to understand Jesus. But also we're going to now see the differential between Jesus and these others in the greatness of who he is, okay? Uh, first, we, we looked at last week what was articulated in Hebrews 7, uh, that he is both priest and king. Remember we said that uh, people take the role of priest or they take the role of king. Rarely in the Old Testament do they take both. But did you hear that about Melchizedek? He was termed the priest of the Most High God, but also in verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham. He's both, and he's also a priest forever, okay? And so just like Jesus, who takes on multiple roles, Melchizedek is both priest and king, but it's not that he, uh, that, that his priesthood ceased. It says in verse 3, he has no genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. That the priesthood of Melchizedek, his representation uh, of uh, the people of God, continues forever. The Levitical priesthood would, would end and pass on to the next generation. But here, Melchizedek uh, has no, is a priest forever, no end to that. And so William Lane, one of my favorite commentators on, uh, we'll put that in the wrong order, so we'll have to go back to that slide we skipped. Um, one of my favorite commentators on Hebrews, he says, Melchizedek possesses a permanent priesthood. His priesthood was not passed, was not passed on to another, and so is Jesus. His priesthood is perpetual. It is forever just in that same way. And go to verse 23 as we look at that idea. Verse 23 and 24. So here's the limitation of the priest and the lack of limitation for Jesus. And I don't think I have it on the screen. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever okay and that is that he is speaking of jesus that he is a priest forever remember when people were questioning him um you know they were asking jesus are you greater than abraham remember how jesus answered in john chapter 8 before abraham was i am and everybody tore their garments because they knew God, jesus was saying that he pre-existed abraham and that he was god himself he is a priest forever. He continues forever. And so back to our summary, one slide back. So uh, this is like the logical synergism that you probably learned about back in high school. Melchizedek is greater than the Old Testament priests. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Therefore, couldn't fit it on the slide. Therefore, Jesus is greater, 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 <laughs> much greater. How do you put like bold, uh, a greater sign? Whatever you can do, um, I wasn't going to underline because that means equal. So uh, Jesus was, is far greater than the Old Testament priest. What does verse 22 say? This makes Jesus the guarantor 
of a better cover, covenant. So Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek was greater than the Old Testament priests. Jesus must be even greater. So he is a guarantor, the one who guarantees a better covenant, and that brings in an absolute salvation. So let's land the plane. If, if Jesus ushers in as a better priest, a better advocate, a better representative, um, if he ushers in a better covenant, He's a one that is a better um, uh, representative and advocate for us. That means we are going to have a better hope, and we live in a hope-starved culture. So a couple years ago, uh, a guy named Manuel Garcia, uh, he was walking into Walmart, and he saw that one of the letters in the, the word pharmacy was dangling. And, uh, and so he ran up to the wall that it was kind of dangling from. We're talking one of those big light-up letters. And he stood under the P and had somebody take a sign. So the P in pharmacy was dangling. He had somebody uh, take a picture of him, of him, and he posted it, saying that he was hoping that P was going to fall on his head so he could sue Walmart. <laughs> okay? It was actually a joke, but everybody took him serious, and uh, it actually got written up in a couple newspapers. So it went so viral that the next day, he actually went back in a new change of clothes and got a day two picture under the P. Uh, and anyway, it was all a joke, but when something is shared, you know, at that point, 45,000 times, we live in a hope-starved culture because this guy was looking for hope and was willing to get it from a pea dangling over his head, and 45,000 people said, that's a great idea. That's a good way to make your life secure. Now, that's a little bit um, far-fetched, but if you really look at your life, are you living as one with a firm and certain hope? Or do you look at tomorrow morning and you're going to head to work, and you are really taking a defensive posture. Man, I don't want to go. I don't want to be there. I don't want to work. What's going to happen? A, a sure and better hope uh, that Jesus brings is the one that drives out fear. Look at verse 18 and 19. This is huge, because the Old Testament priests come out of the Old Testament system, including the law. So verse 18 um, says this for on the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect okay so that's the first part so uh, on the one hand um the the law was weak and useless because it didn't make anybody perfect got that okay next he goes on uh and i wish i could see better here we go um but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So here's the picture, okay? If your approach to God and your confidence in coming before him was based on how well you acted according to the will of God or the law of God, got that? Your confidence before God is based on how well you keep his law and his rules. How confident are you? right? You know, not very. Actually, you have no confidence whatsoever because you know probably in this church service alone, you have transgressed the law of God somehow. You're like, wow, if I stand on my own merit, I have no confidence. And so if you have no confidence, you have what before God? Fear. 
But fear, uh, what drives fear out is a firm and certain hope. On the other hand, rather than fear, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. It says in chapter 4, with confidence. Rather than the law, rather than an uncertain move of the Old Testament priest that could not clear our conscience, we come to God with a, with a much better hope. And so the hope in Christ is greater than the hope in the law. The hope in Christ that we have drives out the fear that the law in the Old Testament priesthood produces. That, that song we sang, Christ is Mine Forevermore, Go back and look at those words, okay? Pull it up on YouTube, because fear is gone and hope is sure, right? Hope pushes fear out. Why? Because of, uh, of God and what he has promised. So the better hope uh, is, is verse 19. So drawing near is better than fear. Verse 22, Jesus is the guarantor, is greater than uncertainty, Verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost or to save completely those he is at work uh, for their behalf. And so we have a better advocate. Look at verse 26, okay? What kind of problem do we have with our sin uh, and rebellion against God? We have a God-sized problem, okay? We have a, we have a problem so big that, that no... Uh, not one of us can fix that. That's why the law was useless and powerless and weak. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting. It matched our problem that we should have a high priest who is what? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, separated from us, meaning he's different than us in his sin. We're sinful, he's not, and exalted above the heavens. We have a high priest who is able to actually bring about salvation. We have a high priest who is not like us in every way, because he doesn't share our sin, yet he understands our temptation. He is one who both understands and is, is able to save us forever. Verse 28 is interesting. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of, an, of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, capital S, Jesus, who has been made perfect forever. Does that phrase trouble you a little bit? That Jesus was made perfect? Does that mean that he was not when he came to earth? When he, was, when he took on flesh, was he not perfect? Chapter 5, verse uh, 9 and 10, 8, 9, and 10 kind of point to a very similar thing, that he learned obedience, and he became, or he was made perfect. Let me submit to you that it was not a deficiency in character or morals. He didn't become perfect in his moral standing and character he was already that he was already consistent with the will of god but he lacked the experience of living a perfect unstained life so it's not as if jesus uh, needed to grow in his morality or his character but he did not have the experience of living that out perfectly and unstained in this world. And so he was made perfect through living out a life adhering to the Father's will. We have one who's fitting. 
one who was without sin, one who lived a perfect record before God. And verse 25 points to that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. I I would submit that many in here feel like they have no business coming into the presence of God. You might say, you know what? My whole life has been just just a, a walking away from him. You know what? I did such horrific things in my past. Or, you know what? I don't feel like I'm worthy to come into the presence of God. And, 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 and I hear that quite a bit. You know what? There's no way I can be close to him because I am not worthy. I'm not valuable. I'm not right. Here's the beautiful picture. Jesus always lives to pray for you. He always lives to constantly bring you into the presence of God. He is constantly, in an ongoing way, reminding us of what? Our hope that's found in him. We have a living hope in a living Savior. It's not just a hope of a certain outcome. We have a hope that we're brought into a person, one who always lives, constantly is alive before the Father God, arguing your cause before the Father. Amen. You're right. In and of yourself, you have no business being in the sight of God. I don't either. But Jesus says they're with me, and he represents us to the Father. Just as he is holy, unstained, innocent, separated from us, and that he's without sin, exalted above the heavens, he brings us into the presence of God so that we could draw near rather than live as ones who are wrapped up in fear. Are you coming before the living God? Are you trusting in Christ? Uh, the, The reason that this is here is so that we would have a better hope. Not hope in better situations, but hope in our Savior who is greater than anyone who's come before him. So let's pray. Uh, God, uh, use your word. Uh, God, take it as much as this context can often be confusing. And Father, the the leaps and bounds of things that seemingly we didn't get into, Father, take all of that by the power of your spirit. Show us the greatness of Jesus. Show us that he is greater than Melchizedek, greater than the Old Testament priests, and all of those things point to him. God, help us to know that we have a hope that transcends situations. We have a hope in a living Savior who argues our case, who is our advocate before the living God. Father, I pray that we would live emboldened because of that. Father, what does tomorrow hold? Help us to look at it rather than defensive, but in the light of the hope that you bring to us. God, you're at work we seek to follow you. You promise to bring us into glory. Uh, and Father, we just we uh, just await that. But in the meantime, God, we live as people changed by a better hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.